My name's Chris. Great to see you. We are, gosh, we're just past the halfway mark, I think, in our Drama of Redemption series. If you um, remember, last September, we started our walk through the entire Bible in a year. So we're going to try to get through this in 52 weeks and um, taking big portions of Scripture and boiling them down to specific stories. Um, and our, our passion for this, our desire for this, is, is simply because we need to think differently about how we read our Bibles. Um, we are Traditionally, we think about the Bible like an encyclopedia, like it's a reference book for the things that we want to f- figure out about life. Um, and there are a lot of great principles in there, and there's a lot of great systematic doctrines in there that, that we like to tease out and draw down and write really thick books about. Um, but the Bible doesn't come to us in that way. It doesn't come to us as a systematic theology. It doesn't come to us as a, as a list of doctrines. It comes to us as a story. And so and, and it's a series of stories that, that really make up one big story of God redeeming his people. God is on a rescue mission to the world, and he explains all of that in the Bible, the story of God's redemption, and he has graciously written us into his story. And so for this whole year, we're going to be telling the individual stories and show how they relate to the big story of God redeeming his people. Um, And that's the series. So we are... um, I'm going to jump right in to where we left off last week, um, really briefly. Last week, we had, we've been looking at the nation of Israel and how God has given them kings. And unfortunately, the kings that have led Israel have fallen, um, fallen from worshiping the one true God. And they have actually, in our episode today, gone from not just tolerating other religions and other faiths among God's people but actually promoting them. And so we will see from this point in the story, it just gets worse. (laughs) And so we are going to see, and I'm going to pick up next week um, on how that play plays out in in the larger story as well. But today, we're going to be looking at what happens right after both well, the nation of Israel gets divided. That's what we talked about last week, how there's a, there's a northern kingdom now and a southern kingdom. And so the story picks up today in the northern kingdom, five kings later after Jeroboam that we left off with last week. And honestly, the kings of Israel from this point, I mean, it's almost like God goes through them like a Pez dispenser. I mean, it is one bad king after another. Most of them are not worth talking about, but Ahab is for a very particular reason, because he is the first king of Israel that actually promoted religious pluralism in Israel. It wasn't just like Solomon where he tolerated his wife's religion within a, within a closed system. This, we find that, a, that Ahab has actually been promoting religious pluralism, promoting his wife Jezebel's Baal worship. Why do you do that? Well, Ahab is very interested in building up alliances along the Mediterranean coast because there's a really big nation called Syria, which is just inside of the coast that is growing in power and really he's, he's, he's afraid for Israel's safety. So to form an alliance with another nation, this is Sidon he's going to align with, um, which is basically the old Philistines, um, he marries the king's daughter and her name is Jezebel. And so to make this alliance work and to make the marriage work, Ahab allows 
Jezebel to bring her religion to Israel, and it officially becomes, for the first time in history, a pluralistic nation. So, um, everything is working fine until God chooses to intervene through his prophet, Elijah. Now, if you went to Sunday school and you remember felt bored stories, you remember Elijah. He is the biggest, baddest superhero of the prophets of the Old Testament. Um, And we're going to talk about one story today where he confronts, God through the prophet Elijah confronts the king Ahab. He confronts the prophets of Baal that have been brought down from Sidon and have actually been put on the, the nation's payroll. The government's payroll is now actually paying for 450 prophets of Baal to promote their religion throughout Israel. The true prophets of God, the true, the true followers of God have literally been chased into caves at this point. So God now intervenes with a three-year drought. A three-year drought. Imagine it not raining in Richmond for three years. You think your, your front yard looks trash now. Imagine three years of no rain, right? So our scene opens up here where Elijah has reappeared to Ahab after three years of drought, and Ahab is ready to talk. First <laughs> Kings 18, verse 20. Here we go. The showdown between God's prophet Elijah and Ahab. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, this is 1 Kings 18, verse 20, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I... Even I only am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire on it. And you will call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire on it. And they took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And then they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocks them. Right? Reading the Bible like a human, right? Here we go. He mocks them saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself. Please slow down and read the Bible and read it like a human. Maybe he's in the bathroom. He's on a journey or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And they cried out even louder and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering 
of the oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Then Elijah called to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it on the burnt offering and the wood. He said, do it a second time, and they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time, and did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, filled the trench also with the water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things according to your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. This is God's word. So, of all the stories in 1 Kings, why, and of all the great stories about the prophet Elijah, why pick this one? Simply, it is the period of Israel's history that matches most clearly the culture in Richmond, culture in the world, the culture of the United States today. Contrary to many folks' predictions, we are living in an age of religious pluralism, just like Israel. And this is a recent phenomenon, especially here in the U.S. and in in the West. Recent phenomenon, because up till recently, pretty much every region of the world had pretty much a dominant religion. So if you're in Germany and you were asked, do you believe in God? You immediately think, oh, do I believe in the Lutheran perspective of God? Or am I an atheist? Or if you, Italy, you know, do I, do I believe in God? That means, do I believe in the Catholic understanding of God or am I an atheist? And even in, in this country, up until recently, if you were asked, do you believe in God? You would immediately think, well, do I, are you, you're asking me if I believe in the Catholic understanding of God, or maybe the Protestant Christianity perspective on God, or am I an atheist? That was the question. But now the question is no longer, do you believe in God? It's, which God do you believe in? And and, and, and this is really a a surprise for many modern thinkers, because it was always thought that modernism, the more culture develops, the more modern we get, the less religious we will be. But the opposite has been the case. Now, modernism has not produced irreligion. It's actually produced a cacophony of religions. The more modern people get, the more pluralistic it gets, not the less religious. And so one one survey recently looked at all all the nations in the world and asked, what's the most religious 
country. And the most religious country in the world is India, based on number of gods and worshipers and things like that. The most secular country in the world, this recent survey found, was Sweden. Now, one thing we're finding out about the United States, though, and in other places, that much of the government and much of the intelligentsia, in terms of education, um, they are actually becoming more secular. But anyone outside of that fear, if you look across the board, is becoming more and more religious every day. So according to this survey, the guy that did it says the United States is pretty much like a nation of Indians being ruled by Swedes. And that's what we have here. A secular government, but an incredibly pluralistic and very religious culture. So what does this mean for us? What's it mean for you? Um, That thoughtful, yes, modern people have to be able to discern between multiple faith convictions. They have to be able to, to discern between religions. The question has to be asked in order for us to function as a very pluralistic society, which one is right? Which one is right? Which one is true? That's what a modern thinking person has to be able to ask so, and answer in order to make spiritual progress. So let me disclaim this real quick. I, Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, has helped me out tremendously with some of his sermons on Elijah in this. Not all these thoughts are mine. Many of them are. But I just have to disclaim that at the beginning. He really helped me understand the way this fits in our culture and the story of Elijah. So thank you, Pastor Tim, wherever you are this morning. Appreciate it. Um, so here's, here's how we're going to walk through the story of Elijah and Mount Carmel. One, I want to answer the question, why is a contest even necessary? Even as I've said that, um, some of you might be objecting to, to that, so I want to answer some of those. One, what are the false gods like? What do we learn about false gods here? Um, and thirdly, what does God then reveal about himself? What, is, what does he reveal about himself in the drought? What does he reveal about himself in the fire? And that's where we're headed today. So why a contest? Um, there's two, two objections you may have. One is you may say, guess what, I'm not religious. I don't have faith. I, I, I don't, um, if you were to ask me, you know, do I worship God or Baal, I would say none of the above. Um, maybe you have a materialistic worldview where you think that this life is all there is and what you see is what you get and there is nothing su- supernatural. That, all, that all, all faiths are really invalid because this is all really we have. I don't have faith in anything. I'm not religious. That is an incredibly faith-driven statement. (laughs) To say that all religions are invalid, this is all we see, that is itself a faith. That is, it may not be an organized religion, but man, that is a faith itself. So, Elijah speaks to those that may feel that this morning. He says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? Limping. This, this word limping actually means stuck. It actually means just stuck. You're lame. And what Elijah is helping us with this morning, he's saying that if we are stuck, thinking that there is a middle ground between the competing religious faiths, we're stuck. We won't make spiritual progress. That the only way to make progress spiritually is to actually discern which one is true. So 
another objection you may have is that I don't need, I don't, we don't need the contest because all religions are basically the same. All religions are basically the same. Now, I understand, and it, I understand that perspective. And I think it, for, when you first hear it, 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 it seems very open-minded, doesn't it? It seems very tolerant. But in reality, if you had, had a panel discussion up here, and you had the rabbi, you had the imam, or the Muslim cleric, and then you had the pastor, if he's a good one, um, they would say, Jesus, great teacher. The imam would say, great prophet. The good pastor would say, he's those and more. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. Both God and man. He is God. Now, three very different perspectives, right? Now, if someone were to say, in the crowd, say, you know what, I appreciate this discussion, but I really think all of your religions are basically the same. We, w- we would all be up here hanging with our mouths open. Like, did you not just hear us? We don't think that. Um, so the point is this, that to say that all religions are, are equally valid and that we don't need to make discernment between them or they're all equally the same, they say they're all the same, is not even to hear what anybody is saying. It may seem tolerant, but really what you're saying is that I'll accept all religion as long as you remove the core convictions of them all. Like Elijah's saying, there is no middle ground. We cannot say that we don't have to make a decision because all religions are basically the same. They're not. They're just not. So I know this challenges some of us in here, but you would not be here unless you were hoping to make spiritual progress. And Elijah is going to help us this morning if we feel like there is a middle ground and we try not to engage and discern the Spirit. So that's why we need a contest. Now, secondly, why are, what are these false gods like? First point about the false gods, you have to serve them in order to get something from them. Think about this. So, so who or what is a Baal? Right? It's kind of a strange term. Um, what, what, what does it mean? And when I first studied this and was reading the Bible, I, I, I thought Baal was, was a proper name, you know, like Aphrodite or Zeus or something like that, um, or like Jehovah. You know, Jehovah is Lord, and that is God's name. It's not his title, it's his name. Um, his title is God. But I used to think Baal was like, more like Jehovah, but Baal is not. Baal is just a title, which just means spiritual Lord. So there were Baals and spiritual Lords for everything. In this, in this culture. There's a rain bale. There's a bale for beauty. There's a bale for partying. There's, I mean, almost everything. There's a bale for wine. There's a bale for wind. There's a bale for sun. bale for the storm. It's just, there were bales for anything that anybody ever really needed. And in this case, Israel had been led to worship the local storm bale by Jezebel, who had brought her religion down from the Philistines. So, Really big deal. This is an agrarian society. You know, you think rain is important for Richmond. Think about an agrarian society where if it doesn't rain, nobody eats, everybody dies. So God's people were duped by other nations to think that they needed to curry favor with these local and particular bales to get what they needed. Now you would think, that's primitive. We're, we're way past that, right? We're way past worshiping, you know, false god's temple. But the reality is that the pagans of that time are willing to admit 
stuff that you and I are not. Everyone worships something. And very much like a spiritual Lord, the way that, the way that you get something is to serve it. See, what, what we see from this pagan culture is that anything can be, anything can exercise spiritual power over us. Anything and everything in our life could be not just an object, but an actual Baal. And that's what Elijah wanted to expose. So religious, Christians, atheists, everything has the potential to actually be one of these false gods for us. Um, here's how this works, practically. I, I um, in college, I went to U of R, and it was like, you know, literally, time spent in college was a time between moments where I was trying to sneak into girls' dorms, right? Back then, it was like a women's side and a men's side, yeah? Um, and I was always trying to go, get, you know, you're human too, right? Okay, I was human in college, so I was trying to get, I was always trying to sneak into girls' dorms. Well, now, it's ironic, I live in one, um, I have five girls plus a wife, so I'm very conscious of what's going on. I'm very conscious of what's going on, particularly with young women around. My oldest daughter is 13, my youngest is four. Um, so this struck me. I was reading through some of those TED Talks or watching some of the TED Talks. Has anyone ever seen some of those, those great short minute lectures, short lectures on you know, just technology, education, cool, innovative stuff. I came across one this week by Cameron Russell. She's a supermodel who has been on Vanity Fair Vogue, I mean, you, you name it. Um, and she was just talking through what the reality of her industry is like. So fathers, please go look at this. It's tremendous. Well, maybe, all right, maybe wives, go look at this. Um, don't Google Cameron Russell. But um, fantastic talk. This is what she said. Airbrushed Composition images are power. They're just powerful. And the video was amazing because she talks about who she really is in real life and puts a picture up next to her, you know, photo in Vogue. I mean, and, she, and the whole point of her lecture is that I'm not this person. This is a composition. This is me. And her whole point was that these images, though, are powerful. These images are a bail. That's what she's saying. So what does this mean for young women especially? If these images begin to shape, begin to shape what you young women want to be, and that's the kind of beauty that they, that, that they want to become, it becomes a bail. It becomes your religion, and you start to serve it. You start to obey its rules. And what are the rules to a beauty? Cut your calories. Get to the gym. Make sacrifices. And if it doesn't work, hate yourself. That's how you serve the God of beauty. So for men, this is just as dangerous because then you start to think, well, that's the kind of woman that I need and that's the kind of woman I deserve if I will serve, if I will make sacrifices, if I will sacrifice my own marriage, if I will sacrifice my own sense of, of, um, of um, contentment with the woman I'm with, I will sacrifice my money to serve that one to get what I, to get that kind of woman. And unfortunately, there's not that many airbrushed women out there, right? The aging people, all right? This is really worse on aging people, right? So in this religion, right, aging is hell. I mean, I don't know if you've ever walked through Stony Point Fashion Park. 
right? That's really close to my house. It, it, you know what happens when you walk into that outdoor mall. You are attacked. You're inundated by these images that are not there for information. They're not there just to direct you to the stores. They're there to exercise spiritual power over you. I don't know if, and I'm, I'm looking at them, and, you know, it, it's pretty much like, wow, that guy's got six-pack abs, he's 22, he has his shirt on, you know, it's like, and then you walk through it, and the glass that was a window becomes a mirror. And you look down, and then you look down, and you don't look like that anymore. And the, and the mirror helps you remember that you're not handsome. Isn't it amazing that the cultures that appreciate age and are the most happy are the cultures that also don't ever have any posters? Think about it. They don't suffer. They're, they're, not, they're not bothered by the God of beauty. So what's happened to us? Every day, Religious, irreligious, we live out the reality of Romans 1.25. We exchange the truth of God, the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than our creator. See, we were meant and created to enjoy God and then to rule over creation, but we've reversed it. Now we enjoy creation, and instead of ruling over it, it rules over us. So, you have to, so they require service. You also have to impress them. You have to impress these gods. Look at the prophets of Baal. It's easy to laugh at them, right? I mean, Elijah does. <laughs> so it's, it's easy to laugh at them. They dance in a frenzy for six hours. Any dancers in here, like professional or like clubbing dancers, right? After a night of dancing, um, hey, dancing's hard work. This wasn't just like, you know, I mean, it says that they were, <laughs> I want to, right. um, this is hard work. It says that they leapt upon the altar. For six hours, they were in a frenzy. They had to impress. They didn't walk into that situation having a relationship, assured of a relationship with God. I mean, can you imagine how exhausted they were at the end? And how disappointed they were that no one cared, no one answered. Here's what struck me about this. Is our worship of Yahweh, of Jehovah, of the one true God, much different from that? Here's what a man said um, after actually losing his faith in God. Um, said that he was praying for something very important. This is what he said. He said, I followed every biblical principle for praying. I prayed in faith. I confessed all known sin. I claimed all the promises. I rebuked the devil. I pleaded the blood. I thanked God ahead of the time for the answer. And I fasted. Yet he didn't come through. What did he do? He danced. He performed. Maybe, maybe some of you parents have done everything by the book, raising your children. You've read all the books, you've taken all the classes, you went to all the conferences, but your kids are a mess, and you know it. 
And you think, well, what kind of God is this? That I, I do everything he says and then my kids are a mess. That's a bail. That's what kind of God it is. You see, with God, with Baal worship, we're always reversing the roles. We are the ones that become wise. We know what we need. We are the one who is good because we've done everything right. But as Elijah said of Baal, we think God is the one who might be on a journey. He's the one who might be distracted or asleep. He's the one who needs information. And he's the one we need to perform before and get his attention. It's just absolute pride. When we fall into works righteousness to impress God or get something from him, we're not worshiping God anymore. We're worshiping a Baal. So, false gods require service. We have to impress him. And thirdly, leads to self-hatred. What do you do when you can't get something you really want? Figuratively speaking, this is what we're saying, we start to cut ourselves. And this is, this is what I mean. You start to hate yourself when you can't get something you really, really want. Because of, because, well, instead of relying on God and trusting in him and leaning on his grace, it's all come down to your efforts and you didn't even realize what you were doing until the idol doesn't come through, until there's a failure. Think about this. Have you ever noticed if you take two people that, that may you know, apply to law school or, or, or something and, and think about them. One just wants to get into law school. The other has to get into law school. The one is just looking for another step in, a, in his career. The other, everything in his future and identity is on the line with that application. And let's say neither of them get in. One can move on. The other never gets over it. I should have done this. I'll never be like that person. It's self-hatred. I'll, I'll, because I can't have this, I'll never be able to move on. What is there to live for if I can't have that one thing? It's self-hatred. It's cutting yourself. It's, that's, how we know we, that's how we know it's an idol. That's how we know it's a Baal. So, we've looked at why there needs to be a contest. Looked at what are the false gods like. Now, how does God show himself different from all of this? Why the drought and why the fire? So, look at Elijah's prayer. It's verse 37. It says, answer me, O Lord, answer me. Show up that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. And here's the phrase and that you have turned their hearts back. See, we, we can look at this and just be amazed at, at just the fireworks and you know, what would be an amazing scene in a movie, right? But, but what's the point? The point is that this is not just a, a showdown at the OK Corral between you know, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He's after something. What is he after? He wants them. He doesn't just want to show his power. He wants his people. He wants them back. So why did he shut off the rain in Israel? To show that he was Lord of the heavens, right? That he was Lord of the rain and Baal was not. And just as an aside, imagine what kind of PR 
fiasco this was for the prophets of Baal. For three years, they had to sell the idea that Baal's not dead, that he's asleep, and he was, they were probably promoting you had to do more. It's your fault. If you'd only listen to us. The showdown was to confirm who was at work. Was it the prophets of Baal? Or was this God's doing? And then we see here in this prayer, why? It was God wanted Israel's heart back. So why the drought? It's very interesting that this is in the past tense. God, show these people that you have turned their hearts back. Through the drought, their hearts were already being humbled. God was already working on them. Their food was gone. Their livestock was dying. No one, not even Ahab in this whole scene, had any fight left. You get this sense that they're already yearning. You see how they don't, you know, they're like, this is a good thing. Please, let's go on with this showdown, right? They're not arguing anymore. There's this sense that they really want to be reminded who the true God is, and they're, they're feeling their hearts humbled toward him again. They want to be reconciled. Isn't this how God deals with us sometimes? Success and comfort, if we're honest, we enjoy it, but often it just seems to confirm us in our idols. We rarely find humility and clarity apart from suffering. Now, for those of us in the middle right now of some immense loss or pain, I think this is good news for you. Um, I also think it's bad news in one way. Good news, this means that God is at work in you. No matter what you're going through, no matter what the heat is, no matter how bad it's getting, you know that God is in control of that. Not a local bail that you have to appease, but the God of the universe that controls every atom ever created. He's in control and he's at work in you through it. The bad news, he may not answer your prayers for things to get better. He may not. Because as we see here, he cares more about you. He cares more about your heart being his than about you being comfortable and you being, for you getting rain. You've been in a drought and you've been praying for rain. It's not coming until God has you. And that's his mercy. That's his mercy. If God had just responded with rain, they may, ne- they may never have turned back fully. I think one of the themes in my life is that God loves me enough to let my life fall apart. I'm 41 years old. I have a lot to reflect upon. Um, some of you may think that's ancient. Some of you may think that's juvenile. But it's happening. Um, you know, and I've been wondering a lot why things have not turned out the way I planned. And you may say, Chris, what do you have to be disappointed about? You know, you have a beautiful family, a beautiful wife, beautiful kids. You, you, you have a job where you do what you absolutely love. You've lost all your hair and you're still handsome. I mean, what, <laughs> what do you have to complain about? Um, what I am coming to grips with and how this is helping me is that no matter, no matter how good a meeting goes, no matter how deep and missional our communities are, no matter how fulfilling my relationships are, they're never perfect. Stuff never plays out the way I've scripted them. That's disappointing. I feel like I'm all, I feel like many things I do now have just have a level of disappointment. And I'm realizing 
that God is at work in me. Maybe things are not perfect because he wants me to always love and go for his perfections. He knows me. He knows you. He knows what a monster we would be and how independent we'd be if anything ever turned out exactly the way we wanted it to. Because then we could look at ourselves and say, look at what I achieved. It's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. We'd be monsters and we'd be far from God. So God in his mercy is letting me sense disappointment in just about everything. So maybe this is why he couldn't send rain. If he had given them exactly what they wanted, they may have just felt confirmed in what they were doing. So, that's the drought. Why the fire? Was it just a show of power? It was, but it it was much more. Sin had separated God's people from God. And as much as God wanted to be reconciled to them, he could not just wipe under the carpet the adultery, the deeply defection of their souls, the fact that God had done everything for them, had cared for them, had showed himself to them, and yet they chose other and lesser things to depend upon for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He couldn't just ignore that. Justice had to be done. Something had to be done. So fire from heaven was coming. It had to come. What is this fire from heaven? Um, throughout, throughout the, if you look at the whole story of the Bible, you never want to be around when there's fire from heaven. <laughs> it never turns out well. Why? Because the fire of heaven is symbolic of the wrath of God. It is his anger being poured out against sin. And we see throughout the biblical narrative that sometimes, all the time, it's dangerous. God is a consuming fire. So, perhaps one of the most notable times that fire is referenced, and even Elijah is referenced, is in Luke 9. The disciples, the disciples are walking with Jesus to Jerusalem where he will eventually suffer and die. Um, And they're walking through Samaria. And the Samaritans reject who Jesus is. And the disciples, in kind of a Barney Fife moment, right? Um, Like, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven upon these people that have rejected you? And if you look at Luke 9, it says there a marginal reading is like Elijah. They're referencing the story of Elijah. They understood what the fire was for. They understood it was God's wrath, but they completely missed the message of Mount Carmel. They completely missed the ministry of Jesus. It says that Jesus then turned and rebuked them. Why? Why did Jesus rebuke them? The disciples thought that Jesus was Elijah in this story. But let's look again at Elijah's actions. It says that he, this is verse 30, it says that he, he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. It says Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob. 
And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. What was Elijah doing? He, he was preparing for a sacrifice. Any good Israelite would have looked at that and known there's a guilt offering coming. There's an offering for our sin coming. There's a burnt offering. One of the above when a bull comes like that. The disciples had missed the point entirely. They thought Jesus was Elijah coming to call down fire on those who rejected him. But he wasn't. Think about the situation. Who in this story on Mount Carmel, where should the fire of God's wrath landed? Should it have gone down on the bull? The bull did nothing. The bull was innocent. Where should the fire of God's wrath hit? The people, King Ahab, the prophets. I mean, anything but the bull. The bull gets the fire in the people's place. So where is Jesus in this story? He's not Elijah calling down judgment. He's the bull that receives the judgment of God. The fire of God's wrath came upon Christ on the cross in his innocence and he received the full fire of God's wrath for the Israelite sin and ours, just like that bull did. That's why Jesus rebuked the disciples. They thought that they were Elijah or they thought that he was Elijah. No, Jesus is the sacrifice. So, sounds too good to be true, right? Sounds too good to be true. We live a life of rebellion and sin. Jesus lives a life of total perfection, pleasing his Father God every step of the way. In an act of God's mercy, he switches. And God treats us like he should treat his son Jesus, living a perfect life before him, and then he treats Jesus like he should treat us. It's just too good to be true, isn't it? Well, don't believe me. Believe first Peter Chapter 3, this is written by Peter, one who lived three years with Jesus, was an eyewitness of Jesus' death, hidden his coming back to life, and was eventually martyred, eventually martyred for this belief. He said this, for Christ, this is 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but be made alive in the spirit. Now, how is God going to bring us back? Is he waiting for us to clean up our act? Waiting for us to perform enough? Waiting for us to hate ourselves enough? To realize we've really repented and really sorry for all that we've done? No. He is giving the life of the righteous for the unrighteous. That's the only way to do it. Even if you were not to sin one more moment from this point until you die, you would never be able to make up for anything that you've ever committed. You need both your slate wiped clean and you need a perfect record going forward. You can't compete with Jesus and how he did that. You can't compete with Jesus' perfect life. That's all that, that is what God requires for there to be reconciliation and peace between us and him. So where are we in the story? 
We are the Baal-worshipping Israel. Christian or not today, we have Baals in our souls. And it's because we were made to enjoy and love the one true God. And yet we've enjoyed other created things, and now they rule over us. So how does this work practically? How does this, how does this then save us from worshiping the Baals around us and in our hearts? Every false religion says, cut yourself for me, and I'll deliver. Do enough for me. The God of beauty says, do enough for me, and you'll get me. Bleed for me, and I'll give you what you need. But only the gospel, only the gospel says that Jesus on the cross was cut for us. That it's not our blood that needs to run. It's his blood ran for us. See, we must come to see that, what, that Jesus gives us freely what Baal will only give us through pain, suffering, and service, and cutting. He gives by his shed blood only what Baal promises if we'll shed ours. Why is this so important? It means that unless you, are al- unless you realize you're already beautiful to God on the basis of Christ's beauty, you'll never be able to resist seeking beauty and worshiping the God of it. Unless you see that you've already been given success through Jesus' successful life and his perfect death in your place, you will never be free from the God of success. You'll always be pluralistic in your heart. Every other religion will ask you to dance and perform until your blood runs. No other religion gets even close to suggest that God himself performs and bleeds for you. Let's take two minutes now to reflect on this. In silence, we're going to take two minutes just to be in silence. This is what I want you to think about as we, as we come to a close here. Are you still limping between God and other, other faith claims, thinking there's a safe middle ground? Ask Jesus to show himself to you. Take, take a moment of humility and just ask Jesus, you please show yourself to me so I can make progress. Been working hard, pleasing all your bales. You've been disappointed, you're exhausted. Um, Take this time, lean into Jesus. Um, In just a couple minutes, we are going to be taking communion together and celebrating Christ in all these things. But thirdly, if you feel far from God, if you're like me, you've been trying to work your way back. Maybe you're dancing. Maybe you're still trying to impress. Maybe you're cutting yourself out of hatred. You may be reversing the roles. Repent for trying to compete with Christ. He has done all the right things. He's perfectly pleased the Father. And on the cross, he already took the beating that you're trying to give yourself. He was cut in your place. Let's take two minutes and we'll be right back to uh, take communion together.